Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 8th of Thursday. We're getting later in the week, and it's late in the afternoon San Francisco time. Uh, yesterday on Wednesday, I did a very entertaining conversation with my old friend, the Brooklyn-based writer, Douglas Rushkoff, um, who has a new book out on the survival of the richest, escape fantasies of tech billionaires who are planning to survive in spite of the planetary meltdown. Uh, in my conversation with Doug, we talked about the survival of the fittest, of course, which is um, I guess how he came up with the survival of the richest and the great man himself, Darwin. Uh, Darwin, of course, focused on change. And we're talking once again of change uh, today with my guest, another Brooklyn writer. I think all writers probably live in Brooklyn these days. Uh, my guest is Jason Pfeiffer, and he has a new book out, not Change is inevitable, but build for tomorrow, an action plan for embracing change, adapting fast, and future. Joining us from Brooklyn, Jason, welcome. Thank you for having me. It is true. All the writers are right here. <laughs> all the writers, all the good writers, all the right writers are in Brooklyn. Uh, and all the people who can't write are stuck here in San Francisco on the other <laughs> coast. Jason, it's Darwinian, I guess. Are you? Is your book sort of premised on a, a soft Darwinian theory of adaptability? Only the adaptable survive? Hmm. You know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think that that's fair. What I... The reason I wrote this book is because when I became editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine, which was back in 2016, people started asking me wherever I went, whether I was speaking at a conference or on a podcast or whatever it was, what are the qualities of the most successful people that I meet? And I'll tell you something uh, that I learned after getting this same question enough, which is that I, I was really, I was wondering, why is everybody asking me this question? This is not a coordinated effort. What is going on? And I realized that if you listen to the questions that people ask you, what you discover is that they're really telling you what they think your value is to them. And if you can understand that, well, then you can understand what it is that they're seeking from you and you can fulfill it. And you have a leg up on providing lots of value to people because you already understand where they trust you the most. And the reason I realize that they're asking me this question, what are the qualities of the successful people I meet, is because they see me as a pattern matcher. I'm the guy who gets to talk to everybody. And I wondered, well, okay, what is the answer to this question? I spent years thinking about it, researching it, talking to successful people about it. And I came to realize that the most successful people are adaptable. That is the driving factor, I think, between people who are successful and people who are not. And the reason is because, of course, the most successful people are able to move through lots of different phases where the things that they try do not necessarily work, but they're able to extract lessons from them and build them into the next thing that they do. And they don't see every change as a loss. They see it as an opportunity for gain. So I wondered, well, how 
do people actually do that? It doesn't seem to be something people are born with. It seems to be a skill that people can learn. And that is what ultimately drove me to write the book. Darwin, of course, thought, thought of this stuff in um, ecological terms, um, right. in, in terms of species. Uh, you, you're thinking, obviously, just about humans and in the short term. Are you suggesting that really the successful people that you talk to, that you experience and, and you meet in your, your role, your day job as, as editor of Entrepreneur magazine, that that's hardwired into them? Or have they had to make an effort to be adaptable? Oh, I think that they had to make an effort. I, I do think that there are some people who it just comes more naturally to. But what I have found is that after speaking to, I mean, look, you know, I, I, the pleasure of my job is that I get to speak to people who are at the, you know, sort of top of the, of the, of any ecosystem that they exist in, whether that is uh, speaking to Dwayne, the rock Johnson or Ryan Reynolds, or, you know, exceptionally famous people, or, and by the way, your, your ability to pull things up uh, as illustrated. Well, I can uh, read your mind. I'm like, Darwin. very, very fast. Like that, that was exceptional. Um, by the time I said that guy's name, there was a picture of him up on the screen. So well done. At least I didn't bring up uh, Maria uh, Sharparova. I wouldn't have confused uh, Dwayne The Rock <laughs> with Maria. But Maria is another example of successful people who you believe can adapt. Is that why she's not playing in the U.S. Open this week? Well, you know, you'd have to ask her about the decision that she made to retire from tennis. But the reason why I included her in the book is because I, I interviewed her just as she was making this transition from being, of course, one of the world's most famous tennis players to a investor and startup advisor. And I, um, I, 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 was, I was really interested to talk to her and hear about how somebody who is at this point used to being at the very top of a game is now starting at the bottom where, I mean, obviously she has a lot of advantages, but she doesn't know everything that somebody who has been an investor and advisor for a long time knows. She doesn't have the same level of comfort in that arena as she did in others. And I was really curious about how it was that she was thinking through that. And the thing that she told me that I put in the book was that what she had learned from her playing days was that she hired people based on whether or not they would be good to lose with. Because the expectation has to be that a lot of the things that you're going to do, if you're an athlete, you're not going to win every match. And if you're in business, you're not going to make every good decision. And so if you can surround yourself with people that are going to be good to lose with, then they're certainly going to be good to win with. That's, so a, very, really uh, that's a very Russian reading of the world. Maybe uh, only Russians can imagine losing with people. Although it occurs to me, talking about Shaparova, that uh, you could have also used Serena Williams as a woman clearly this week who chose to retire from tennis or is planning to retire from tennis, maybe have another child, try another career, that she's another example of someone who was intensely focused on being the greatest player, not just in the world, but perhaps in history, and now is willing to move on. It, it, it takes special people. When I think of other fields, Jason, when I think of politics, for example, most people don't get the message, whether it's Trump or Biden or, or Nancy Pelosi or Dianne uh, Feinstein out here. Why are politicians so slow to get it, whereas successful athletes and business people get it? Mm, it's a really good question. I mean, my, I, I think that that question has more to say about politics than it does about human nature. 
I mean, in the case of politics, I think that people, I mean, this is my own personal opinion. I don't think particularly highly of anybody in politics, but I generally feel like if somebody has gone into politics, it's not because they're interested in making a difference. It's because they're interested in being part of the big game. And uh, and so, sorry, I'm turning around because it looks like I have a seven-year-old who has come in. Ben, I'm, I'm, I'm live on a podcast right now, so I really need the room uh, by myself, okay? Thank you very much. This is uh, this is what it's like uh, being a, a, a parent with children at home. Um, and this is the things. Darwinian life in um, in Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> can you please close the door? Thank you. Um, you know, it's funny. I side note, and then I'll get back to bashing politicians. Um, I in the earlier days of the pandemic, when of course everyone was working from home with their small children. And my kids would burst in in the middle of whatever, you know, sometimes it was just a meeting with colleagues, but sometimes it was something live like this, or it was, um, I, you know, I, I do keynotes, people pay me and I would, you know, I want to perform well. I want to deliver value because they're, they're, they're buying my time. And then I would have this kid burst in. And at first I was very nervous about that. And I would, I would try to usher the kid out as fast as possible or not acknowledge them and just see if I could keep going. But then I discovered that actually the children running into the room was often the most memorable and charming part. People would always reach out to me afterwards. They would say, I love that moment where your kid came in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, so I would just now, then I would encourage the kid to just kind of come and sit on my lap. Uh, and, and I would just keep rocking. And, uh, and I found that sometimes the things that we think of as uh, downsides are really actually sometimes our greatest assets, as long as we're willing to reframe them as such. Um, but anyway, to your, to your question about the, the politicians, I mean, look, I think that I, I think the, the jaded answer about politics is that I think that people who get into politics are generally more interested in being part of the big game than anything else. Uh, and um, I mean, you know, the, there was this fascinating... Uh, interview with uh, Lindsey Graham on the Daily, the New York Times podcast about why he had gone from being a Trump opponent to a Trump supporter. And uh, his explanation, which I thought was actually you know, shockingly candid, was that uh, he wants to be relevant. Lindsey Graham is is primarily concerned about being relevant. I mean, this is what he said himself. And, um, and you know, I think that you can see, right, it, it's not particularly about whether or not he is standing up for anything that he believes or doesn't believe in, but rather just that he, he wants to be part of the big game. And if you were not a Trump supporter at that time, the Republican Party, you weren't part of the big game. And why show up to work if you're not part of the big game? So I think that these people see a... Um, a, a lack of relevance when they lose their, uh, their, their positions and they don't really know what else to do with their lives. And that's scary. I mean, I think a lot of people hang on to these jobs, which have great consequence for their communities or the country simply because they don't have any idea what else to do with themselves, which is kind of sad and scary, I think. But, um, but more broadly speaking, um, I think that it's a lesson in, uh, in a mistake that a lot of us make, which is that we, identify as individuals far too close with the output of our work, which is to say that we think of ourselves as a person in a certain job or who does a certain task. When I was a newspaper reporter in my earlier days, I thought of myself primarily as a newspaper reporter. That was my identity, which meant, of course, that when it came time for me to consider leaving newspapers because it wasn't a particularly stable industry, I felt like I don't know how to do that because my entire identity is tied up in this job. So what we need to do as, as, as humans, as individuals who can navigate change, is we need to identify with something more core than these easily changeable things. We need to find the thing that does not change 
even in times of change. For me, I, I came up with a simple sentence for myself, which is, I tell stories in my own voice. I tell stories, not magazine stories, not newspaper stories, not books, and so on. And that way, no matter what changes in my industry or what changes in the opportunities that I have available to myself, I have given myself a mission statement that is so core and deep inside me. It's a why instead of a what that it enables me to feel oriented no matter what happens. Uh, last week, I, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. It's kind of interesting. Sterling Hawkins, um, he's on the sort of the TED or the TEDx circuit as well. He has a new mm. book out, Hunting Discomfort, How to Get Breakthrough Results in Life and Business No Matter What. I'm not suggesting that he's saying the same thing as you are in, in Build for Tomorrow. But what do you think of this idea of looking for discomfort. Isn't that what you're saying as well, that if we feel too comfortable, we're going to end up as losers? Yeah, I think it's an interesting way of framing it. I have a friend named Michael Easter who wrote a book called The Comfort Crisis, which engages with similar ideas. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, for some of us, the idea of, of actively seeking out discomfort is, 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 is going to seem so discordant that it's not going to be uh, it's not going to push us right. But I do think that there is something very good about being in somewhat uncertain environments. And the reason for that is because it pushes up us to find ever more creative solutions. You know, I, I mean, think about right now we are in, a, in an interesting moment in the history of work where we're thinking very differently or we're pushing to think very differently about where and how we work. And that is, you know, it's leading to some really stupid questions, uh, stupid conversations about things like quiet quitting, which I just think is an absurd and, and, and it's just the dumbest of all uh, um, phrases and terms. Well, but there's and, an even dumber one, uh, Jason, which is uh, uh, quiet firing. Yes, I saw that. I saw that the <laughs> the follow up to quiet quitting is quiet firing. But, you know, I mean, the problem with this and I'll, I'll go back to the to the original point that you made, but just to just to kind of flesh out what I'm talking about here. The problem with this is that we, we have a cultural problem, which is that if we give something a new name, we think that it's new. You can think back to 2013 when the word selfie was new and everyone acted like this was the first time in human history that anybody had turned a camera on themselves. And we had all these stupid conversations and all these stupid TV segments about how self-absorbed kids were today because now they're taking selfies, not aware that literally the very first people who ever had cameras, I mean, like a century ago, were taking photos of themselves. So, you know, just because there's a term for something that's new doesn't make the thing itself new. And people have been kind of giving up on work for forever as individuals, oftentimes because they don't see the value in the work. And they're and frankly, maybe they're they're doing work that that it does not have value to them. And you know what? That's OK, because not every job has to be, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the central part of people's lives. But McKinsey and company just released a study earlier this year uh, in which they, they surveyed people who had quit their previous job and asked what was the driving force uh, of, of them doing that. You know, it was so interesting. The number one reason wasn't money. It was lack of career advancement. 
People were in jobs and they did not see a future for themselves in those jobs and they did not feel support at those jobs. And so they left. Now, whether they quietly quit or they actively quit, whatever the case is, you can see that ultimately this was not a place where they were going to find meaningful work and they wanted to find it elsewhere. That is as old as the idea of work itself. So I think that it's stupid to be having this conversation about how this is new. However, and this goes back to the point that you were making about comfort. And this is why I think that this kind of stuff is valuable because we are right now having a, a, a conversation in which a lot of people who are on both sides of work as the worker or the employer or the manager are, are uncomfortable. And that discomfort is pushing companies to come up with new solutions that are going to be um, uh, ultimately, I think, beneficial to their worker because they're trying to figure out how to keep people and keep their best talent. You know, if you're... If you if everything is hunky dory and you're a manager, you're not going to spend any time thinking about how you can make the work environment and the work process better for the people on your team. But when there's discomfort, you better figure it out. And so I think that a lot of times discomfort and change can actually drive really wonderful conversations and great results. And there a broader cultural problem, or we might even think of it as a cultural contradiction in uh, these issues that you're approaching in uh, Build for Tomorrow. On the one hand, we live in a, a Darwinian world of a, only the adaptable survive. Um, uh, on the other hand, the kind of people who will read your book and who you're writing for in Entrepreneur Magazine and elsewhere are not Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Maria Sharapova. Right. They're mid-level uh, they're mid-level executives or they'll want to be entrepreneurs. And many of those people, for better or worse, are not willing or able to take risks. They don't have the confidence the ex uh, rooted in themselves. So as, as the economy becomes more and more dynamic, as it churns more and more people, is that one of the reasons why we have this perhaps epic epidemic of unhappiness, uncertainty, insecurity, perhaps even mental illness, Jason? Well, again, I want to make sure that we're not treating an old thing like it's new, because when we do that, we inhibit our ability to identify meaningful solutions to things, right? If we think that something that we're witnessing is actually a brand new phenomenon, then we're going to assume that the solution must lie in identifying whatever brand new thing just Yeah, I'm happened. not saying it's then, brand new, but yeah. maybe the pace is picking up, shall we say? Maybe. Um, maybe, but you know, the, there's a, a Paul Ferry, the researcher at University of uh, Calgary, who uh, goes viral on a regular basis on Twitter for finding, uh, you know, he makes these threads of uh, newspaper clippings, uh, uh, you know, of, of a kind, um, did a really great one not long ago about the history of people saying nobody wants to work anymore, which of course is a rallying cry today for people who are criticized, you know, critical of, uh, of workers. But, um, but, you know, it turns out you can find people expressing exactly that as far as back, I think he has found, he had found it, 1896, but it shows up on a, on an extreme regular basis. Uh, and uh, it's pretty funny to see, actually, because, you know, he's got this same phrase, but being applied to completely different circumstances. And I, I saw that and I was curious what uh, what was the explanation for why nobody wants to work anymore as a phrase was showing up repeatedly throughout history. I, I called a guy, his name is Peter Stearns. 
He's a, uh, he's a history professor at George Mason University. He wrote a book about the history of work. And we went through a whole bunch of them. And the, the, the lessons from it were really fascinating. The, the short of it is that uh, uh, on a regular basis throughout history, the nature of work changes, uh, right? There's some uh, industry shift or there's some technological shift or there's some cultural shift. And, um, and, and, it, and it means that uh, the, the kind of work that we do and the way that we do it is going to change. And when that happens, a couple things happen as a result. Number one, workers start pushing for a better deal, right? I mean, you know, workers there's a sort of deal. This is the uh, this is the work that you do, and this is the pay that you get. And uh, and then when that changes, workers of course want a better deal for themselves, as they should. It doesn't mean that they don't want to work, um, but it does mean that they're looking for an improvement in their lives, which is the reason now, for example, that a lot of people are pushing for remote work because frankly there was no reason for them to be in the office in the first place. Not everybody, but I think that that's the case for a number of people. Um, and so there's that also. Uh, what work looks like changes. So we have new kinds of work, new ways. To work new tools to work but the old uh, sort of older generation doesn't recognize this new way of working as work and so they say nobody wants to work anymore and then of course there are the people who aren't actually doing the you know the, the sort of un um uh the 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 the, the um the under uh uh, paid work uh and so undercompensated work and uh, those people are saying well, we would like everybody to continue to work exactly the way that they were and for the amount of money that we want to pay them. And if they aren't willing to do that, well, then nobody wants to work anymore. This is just this is just the wrong narrative and the wrong way to understand what's happening. People do want to work hard. They do. And they have consistently throughout history, but they want better work too. They want better conditions for themselves. And that's not something that should just be a worker side issue because as anybody who employs people knows, the better that you are able to create an environment for your labor force, the more loyal they're going to be. And the more lo loyal they're going to be, the less money you have to spend constantly replacing them. So I think this is a healthy conversation for everybody to have. And now it's happening now. But it's not to say that, uh, that, that there is some kind of unique moment right now. In fact, we ran this piece in Entrepreneur Magazine, uh, written by uh, a great writer, a friend of mine, Joe Cohane, in which he interviewed uh, researchers who, who, who have for decades been trying to identify what it is that makes work meaningful. Turns out this has been an area of academic study for decades, and nobody can come up with a singular explanation for it. We all want meaningful work. We want to provide meaningful work, but we cannot exactly define what that meaningful work is. That's very, very hard to do. So it's an ongoing conversation that I think it's really wonderful that we're having, but let's also not confuse uh, our moment with uh, some kind of unique problem. I think we're not just looking for meaning in work. We're looking for meaning in everything we do. Uh, your book, Build for Tomorrow, has an interesting uh, subtitle, An Action Plan for Embracing Change, Adapting Fast, and Future-Proofing Your Career. Can you really ever future-proof your career, Jason? Isn't, isn't the idea of future-proofing your career a contradiction with your whole thesis? <laughs> uh, that's a that's a nice um, a pointed observation. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think that you can ever future proof anything. And you should never think of future proofing because when you do that, you're dead. Well, sure, that's a fair point. But I do think that what you can do is you can think about how you can be 
using the moment right now to become more resilient for tomorrow, uh, right? Which isn't to say that you can do something right now that's going to ensure that you are going to be successful and protected from all change for the rest of your lifetime, but you certainly can take actions right now that are going to make sure that you have more opportunities tomorrow and so that you are more responsive and more adaptive to whatever change comes. One of the tips, for example, in my, in my book, uh, I call work your next job. So the argument that I make here is that in front of us all, there are two sets of opportunities, opportunity set A and opportunity set B. Opportunity set A is everything that is asked of you. So you go to work and you've got a boss and that boss needs things from you and the way in which you do those tasks are the things that you're going to be evaluated on. And that's how you're going to either get paid or get fired. That's opportunity set A. Opportunity set B is everything that is available to you that nobody is asking you to do. Now that could be something at work where you have, uh, uh, you could join a new team or you could take on new responsibilities, but it could also be something outside of work, where you are taking classes, learning new skills, or just trying out something that you find particularly interesting. Maybe you enjoy uh, uh, listening to podcasts and you decide uh, to start a podcast. Now, my argument is that opportunity set B, the stuff that is available to you that nobody's asking you to do, is always more important infinitely more important. And we all need to think about the way that we approach work that way. Because if you only focus on opportunity set A, then you are only qualified to do the things that you are already doing. But opportunity set B is where growth happens. Now, Andrew, you make a great point that we can't be future-proofing ourselves forever. But I think that when you focus on opportunity set B, you open doors that would have not been open and you create new opportunities that you cannot actually foresee. One, one small example from my own career for, uh, would be that when I was an editor at Fast Company many years ago, my job was to edit features for the print magazine. But while I was there, we started a video department and, uh, and, and, and nobody asked me to join the video department. But I was curious about it. And so I volunteered and I got in front of camera and, you know, the director said, you know, hey, you, you, you got something there, but let me help you out. And he started giving me some advice and I became better and better. And ultimately I hosted two shows for Fast Company by the time I had left. Now, what was I going to do with that skill? You know, I don't know. I thought about it. I thought maybe I'll go into television. Maybe somebody will give me a TV show. Nobody gave me a TV show. But couple years later, after doing more and more video, and then also because I was comfortable on camera doing other work where I was now then also doing work on stage, for example, as a speaker. And then I was interviewing to be editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. This was, I mean, this was years later. And one of the things that they really liked about me was that I could be a good advocate for the brand. They knew that I could go on television and be a coherent spokesperson and share ideas that are going to be of value to entrepreneurs and therefore will reflect back OL on the brand and that I could also do so on stage. So 
that was one of the reasons why I got the job that I still have right now as editor-in-chief of a national magazine. I could not have possibly foreseen that joining the video department at Fast Company would have led to becoming an asset that ultimately helped me get this other completely different job. But that's what we do when we focus on opportunity set B, is we create the possibility of new opportunity that we wouldn't have before. That is a kind of future-proofing of your career, obviously not completely, but it certainly does open future doors. Do you think that the kind of action plan that you're calling for in Build for Tomorrow and you're laying out, can it also make you a better person in moral terms? Uh, you know, my show with Doug Rushkoff, he's He's like you, he lives in Brooklyn and he's a writer, but he's a critic of tech and he's a critic of business. So he's coming at this slightly differently from you. But you know as well as I do, Jason, that many of our business leaders are not particularly respected and there's a huge amount of corruption and irresponsibility and lack of accountability in business. Um, should in building for tomorrow, one be future-proofing not just one's career, but one's morality? Oh, that's an interesting question that goes a little beyond my general scope. I think that we should always be striving to grow in what we feel like are ways in which we're doing well for ourselves and for our community. I, I, I But I don't think that these have to be mutually exclusive things. Uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, it, let me let me let me take it down um, a level from talking about um, sort of morality writ large, which is which is not a space that I generally play in. But I'll tell you this: I the other day was uh, on Instagram Live. I was on a I was using an entrepreneur's account, which has like four million followers, and I'd gone on to Instagram Live to answer some questions uh, from people, which I do from time to time and to, you know, hawk my book. And I, I, I you know, I'm holding up the copy of my book as I'm talking and uh, people are digging in and they're, they're responding really nicely. And then there is this one person who says, Hey, everybody, let's not forget he's getting paid. And I thought there's such an interesting response that he has. An, and, and I recognize it because before I was deeply involved with the business community, I also had this deep skepticism of anybody who was doing anything for money because it just felt like, oh, well, that's a, that's an ungenuine thing. That's a, that's a selfish thing. But I've, I've since learned and thought much differently about it, I have to tell you. And, and, I, and I said so in the Instagram live. And what I said was, look, you know, at the very beginning of my own journey into creating things for people, I was deeply uncomfortable ever self-promoting. It just felt like I was an imposition to folks and that I was being greedy by asking people to pay attention to the things that I was doing or, you know, you, God you forbid. You don't seem a, a self-promoter to me, Jason. What's that? You don't seem a self-promoter to me. Well, I appreciate that. I'm as I teaching wait, you. Go on. As I wait. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, you know, look, I, I hope that I don't come off as a self-promoter, but maybe you think that I do, and that's fine. You're not sure. Am- you've been waving that book, and you've mentioned that you're an editor at Entrepreneur Magazine several times. But as you say, that's the way to survive, isn't it? It's Not only is it the way to survive, but I generally find that people are interested in people based on, uh, uh, you know, what they've learned and, and what their credentials are. And so I, I, I use that 
as a means not just of signaling that uh, as you know maybe it, maybe there's a value in the things that I have to say, but also because just that's the context. What am I supposed to do? Not say where I work as I'm trying to explain the things that I do and what I've learned. But anyway, the 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 point is that what I what I've come to believe uh, is that I think that if you have something that you genuinely believe is of value, it, this is something that you did that you believe in, you believe in the worth of it, and you believe that it can be valuable to other people, well, then you actually have an obligation to make sure that people know about it. I mean, people don't make things just to put them in a box in a corner somewhere. They make things to get them out in the world and be useful to people. That's the incentive system that we have to create great things. And if we didn't have that, then we would all be just sitting around in the dirt but we're not because we had people who did great things and yes, they got paid for them, but they made wonderful things and then they wanted to make sure that other people had access to them. And frankly, the people who had access to them were grateful for it. I am grateful for the people who developed this microphone. I think it's a great microphone. We're talking on Restream right now. I don't begrudge the people who made Restream for making money and then advertising it so that other people used it because it's a great platform and it's enabling everybody right now to pay attention to us and hear our conversation. I think that's wonderful. So I don't have a problem with creating something that I believe in and making sure that people know about it, which is why I'm holding my book up once again. And I think that that's wonderful. <laughs> and I think that it's kind of crazy that we have now equated being able to make money off of something as somehow being disingenuine. Yes, of course, there are plenty of points that you could you could make about how you know people, uh, uh, once they make enough money, uh, do things that are, that are uh, unjust and unmoral. And that's perfectly fair and we should address those things but just simply because somebody is uh you know making a lot of money uh, having created something i think doesn't just doesn't by itself mean that they've done something wrong jason let's end with um this issue of whether change in your career can also help with your life uh, on your website, uh, you talk about, you ask your, your potential readers, have you experienced or are you planning a big change in your career or your life? Uh, do, does your argument in Build for Tomorrow, I mean, we've been mostly talking about career workers, you're, a, you're an entrepreneur magazine, so you know that field pretty well. How does it cross over into life itself, outside yeah. the office, outside work? I think that when we adapt, when we develop a mindset in which we don't immediately identify new things as bad or scary or full of loss, we create a more open mind for ourselves and we create a greater future for ourselves. I think that a lot of people live too much in fear of the new. We react negatively to the new. We see new technologies and we say, this is new and terrible. I'm going to immediately leap to the, to the, to the worst possible conclusion about this. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is something, of course, we've been doing throughout history as well. I, uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is of, uh, and, you know, here's a, here's a sort of life and not business story, um, uh, uh, but, but with society at large. So I, I don't know if you know this, but in 1907, there was a national moral panic over the teddy bear. So the teddy bear was a brand new thing. It had come over from Germany where it was invented just a few years before it become very popular. And in 1907, people were exceptionally 
angry at it. And uh, it started with a, or you sort of gained national uh, awareness uh, with a priest in Michigan named Michael G. Esper. And uh, he gave this fiery sermon against this, the teddy bear that was then reprinted in newspapers around the country. And it kicked off a, a, a sort of national moral panic. Schools started banning teddy bears. You know, other uh, preachers started uh, joining the fight. Now, what was happening? Why were people so concerned about this? Here's why. Because they believed at the time, again, remind you, this is 1907, they believed that girls had one function in life, and that function was to grow up and become mothers. And the doll, they believed, helped these girls do that, because when the girls played with the doll, they developed a maternal instinct. But when the teddy bear comes along, the girls put the doll down and they pick up a teddy bear and therefore they don't develop a maternal instinct. And so the thinking went, they will not grow up to be mothers and such will be the end of humanity. Now that of course is ridiculous. It's not obviously what happened at all, but you want to ask now the next question is, well, why would anybody have gone to that great of a mental gymnastic exercise to be so so uh, uh, concerned about the teddy bear. And the answer is because if you look at what was happening at the time with gender dynamics, you were seeing that women were becoming educated in a way that they had never been before. And they were entering the workforce in a way they had never before. And so what you had was actually a lot of uh, traditional cultural anxiety about that exact thing. And you had a lot of men who felt like women were leaving their, their rightful place at home. And, uh, and they were, uh, they were, you know, perhaps going to supplant the men. So they were very concerned, but that's a big, scary, gigantic thing to try to hold in your head. And so they tried to distill it down to the teddy bear. The teddy bear is the problem. This small, simple thing is clearly representative of this larger problem. Now, why am I telling this story? I'm telling this story because I think that we are making that kind of mistake all the time. I think a lot of the cultural conversations that we have about new things and about how new changes are destroying this or that thing or that or this person or how children are now being destroyed by technology, I think that that's a version of the teddy bear conversation. We have cultural anxieties. We have personal anxieties. We see change coming and we also fear that our own station in life is going to be disrupted as a result. And so we start to push back. And when we do that, what I think we do is we primarily spend and waste a lot of our energy on things that are kind of meaningless conversations. Whereas what we could be doing is instead seeing new things as an opportunity for growth. Doesn't mean that every single new thing that is introduced to the world is going to be perfectly valuable. And it also doesn't mean that every single thing that's going to be introduced to the world is going to be perfect. But that's not the question that we should be asking ourselves. We shouldn't be asking ourselves every single time, is this perfect? Is this part? Is this new technology perfect? Or is screens for children perfect? Are um, scooters uh, um, like Lime and Bird being introduced into the city streets or city sidewalks perfect? Because that's the wrong question. Nothing is ever perfect, and we if we try to evaluate things based on whether they're perfect or not, of course the answer is going to be they're not, and therefore we're going to say, well, we got to throw these things in the garbage and retract back to what we were comfortable with from the past. But instead, the better question that we should ask is this. Are our new problems better than our old problems? Are our new problems better than our old problems? Because if we ask that question, then we can actually start to identify 
progress because are our new problems better than our old problems also acknowledges that things will have problems and that problems are simply part of the bargain of progress and that that's an okay thing to do because we are problem solvers by nature. So let's start experimenting. Let's be more open to new things. That isn't just a work thing. That's a human thing. That's a societal thing. And I think the more that we are able to have more coherent, meaningful conversations about that, the more we're going to be able to actually progress and create more solutions for more people. Very well said. Next time, Jason, you're on the show, I'm going to have a, a teddy bear, not just a <laughs> slide, I'm going to have a real teddy bear to wave at the screen. I can't resist asking you a final, final, you brought up women. What about this issue of uh, female uh, building for tomorrow versus male? Some people might say that your book is very male focused and oriented. I did a conversation with Christy Hunter Ascott. Uh, she has a new book out, Begin Boldly, How Women Can reimagine risk, embrace uncertainty, and launch a brilliant career. Probably in many ways not that different from your book. Do they need to be separate books for women and men when it comes to building for tomorrow? It's a really excellent question. I I mean, look, the answer is no, there don't need to be. And and I also wouldn't say that my book is particularly male oriented. I, you know, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I threw out a couple of names in our conversation that were that were uh, that were men. But there's, uh, you know, I mean, well, I was actually Dwayne the Rock. I don't know whether he's more attractive to men or women. <laughs> That's a very good question. It might be half and half. Um, but there are, I mean, you know, I was, I was really, really conscious of creating a balance of examples uh, of both men and women. And, and, and also to be clear that the book is not full of celebrities. There are some celebrities in there, but it's mostly uh, kind of regular, uh, uh, you know, everyday entrepreneurs who have built either small community companies or, you know, or, or, or startups that are serving a national audience. But, um, but you know, I, I, I grapple with what you've just raised every year, particularly around uh, the production of Entrepreneurs October issue, which which is our 100 Women of Influence issue. Now, you know, this isn't something that only Entrepreneur does. Uh, most business magazines at this point have an issue that's particularly devoted to female entrepreneurs or female leaders. And, you know, every time that we make this, I think, you know, it, it, we're really stuck in a moment in time here because we we shouldn't just be celebrating women entrepreneurs as if there's some kind of separate category from men entrepreneurs right everybody should just be entrepreneurs and in fact we've 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 encountered some women um, you know, very prominent women who, who actually really hate being in, included in these issues because they don't want to be on the cover of the women issue. They just want to be on the cover of the regular magazine. And, and, I, and I completely sympathize with that and frankly would, would be very happy to get rid of this whole thing. But what I have found and the reason why we continue to do it is because at this moment in time, uh, women are still at a severe disadvantage in terms of being able to raise money relative to men. Uh, um, you know, the, uh, being in leadership positions at uh, Fortune 500 companies, and so as a result, there are, there are a lot of conscious efforts to raise the profile of female leaders and. Also, there is an immensely strong and thriving community of, of women uh, you know, and female entrepreneurs who are out supporting each other. And I think that that's great. Now, I think, again, this is a moment in time. And I, and I think that we'll all be happy when we're past that moment in time. And we're not thinking about these distinctions because we've created some more, you know, a kind of more equitable, equitable world. But as we know, um, uh, you know, an equitable world uh, tends to be 
uh, unfortunately further out of reach than we would like. And so I don't know exactly when we'll get there. As a result, I think that it's great to have those kinds of books, but I think that it's also really important for people like me, you know, a male writer, um, to, to make sure that when I'm writing a book that I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to everyone and reflecting everyone. Well, that's an interesting book and a very interesting conversation. Build for Tomorrow, an action plan for embracing change, adapting fast and future-proofing your career by my guest, Jason Pfeiffer. He's not shy. He's very articulate. And I hope, uh, Jason, tomorrow or tomorrow or tomorrow, we can have another conversation, lots more to discuss. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book just out earlier this week. What else are you reading uh, I know you're busy with Entrepreneur Magazine, but uh, what books are are you enjoying at the moment or have you enjoyed or you plan to enjoy? Oh, boy. I mean, you know, the funny thing is, um, uh, so first of all, thank you for the for the, you know, the really uh, engaging conversation. Your your questions are super sharp um, in, in all the right ways. So, uh, uh, you know, I mean, let's see, what am I, what am I looking at right now? Um, I uh, was just looking at what, what's on my desk. I, do, I want to show you something that's just on my desk. Um, well, here's one. Um, funny enough, I'm just going to... Uh, no gonna, teddy gonna, bear. you got to get the teddy bear out, Jason. I know. I have a teddy bear in the other room where there was, hopefully there's now a sleeping child instead of a screaming child. But watch this. My my computer has been sitting on a stack of books. <laughs> there it is. Oh, nice, so, um, oh no. So... Um, uh, look at this. This is this is what home offices are like. Anyway, um, I'll tell you. Uh, just... Real time catastrophes. <laughs> uh, I'm just gonna just grab one at random here. Um, so you know, speaking of as you as you just were a moment ago, uh, making sure that uh, you know we're 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 having a conversation not just about building things but also uh, building moral things. Um, so uh, there's a guy named Derek Kinney who. Uh, I've gotten to know who wrote a book called Good Money Revolution, How to Make More Money to Do More Good. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that this is a really smart way of framing business and weaving the two together, right? That we don't have to think of doing good as opposite of making money. And um, so I, you know, I really, I really appreciated uh, this. As you can see, I've got a little part of it uh, earmarked here. Um, turns out when you have a book coming out, you don't have a whole lot of time to read other books, but I have a kind of crazy pile that I'm excited to get to. Excellent. 